With a focus on every detail, the world's best road cycling shoe just got better. Shimano engineers took a 3D look at pedaling dynamics to better understand how pressure is applied throughout the pedal stroke. They discovered distinct zones where force is exerted differently across the shoe and optimized the RC902 shape and materials to maximize power transfer while maintaining a comfortable, lightweight design. The newest S-Fire shoe is available in standard as well as women's specific and wide options. Shimano recognizes that while performance is king, aesthetics are important too. The sleek RC902 comes in four colors, letting you spice things up with stunning blue or the all new red color option. For a more subtle look, the RC902 is also available in the always fashionable black and classic white. Already on the feet of Mathieu Vanderpoel and Wout van Aert, now you can focus on every detail. Hello and welcome to another edition of Bobby and Jens. My name is Bobby Julik and on the other end of the Atlantic is my best friend Jens Volt. Jens, how you doing buddy? I'm doing okay. Um, did the um, every year routine, checking all the bikes of kids and wife, um, cleaning them, oiling them, pumping up the tires. So that kept me busy today. The weather is finally good, nice and warm. So I did a big bike check and that was my job of the day. So I'm all good. You can come over here because to the listeners that listened to the podcast last week and can probably hear it in my voice a little bit, the pollen here in South Carolina is, is pretty major. And my bike is a black-on-black -black bike. And it is basically a yellow bike right now after like two or three rides. Just pollen all over it. It's, it's so gross. So uh, maybe I'll take a, a page out of your to-do list book today, Jens, and actually go out and, and wash my bike. But listen, um, today I am so honored um, not only to have you as my co-host, Yenzi, but to have one of my oldest friends in cycling as our guest. He's one of the most popular riders of all time. I mean, I'm reminded of this walking down the street, everywhere we go, every event we go, everyone wants to talk to this guy. Um, but, but most important is that he's one of the best human beings I've, I've ever met and um, in, in my entire life. He's been known as the loyal lieutenant, Gentleman George, Big G, we even call him Chef Jean-Georges when we're at the lake because he tries to cook pizza, which is kind of funny. But uh, to those of you that don't know him, welcome George Hincapie to Bobby and Jens. Well, we got a special guest here today, one of my longest friends in cycling um now this last four and a half five years is my neighbor one of the best human beings i've ever known mr george hincapi welcome to bobby and jens thanks guys it's uh, great to see you again bobby although i just saw you about an hour ago jens it's been a couple of years uh since i've seen you so really good to be on your guys' show and uh happy to be here 
Yeah, man, I really appreciate you coming on the show today because I know you're playing hooky from your own podcast, The Move. Um, when do you are like what what's the uh, the schedule with The Move right now? Are you guys doing all the classics? Or are you going to start doing the uh, the Giro, Dauphiné? Obviously, you guys do the tour. What's your guys' upcoming schedule look like? Yeah, so we've been covering all the classics. We just uh, did Amstel Gold Race on on Monday, and obviously we got uh, Fletch, uh, Fletch Ballone. Uh, we'll probably cover that on Thursday, and then uh, Liege. Uh, not sure if we'll do that Sunday or Monday. Um, but yeah, so we, we've tried to cover all. We have covered all the classics and uh, sort of the iconic races. And then we'll take a little break and then get ready for all the, the tour stuff. Awesome. Awesome. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't even think that Jens knows this story, but um, just to give a little backstory about how long I've known George, I met George in Somerville, New Jersey in 1987. And kind of a funny story, I went to the Olympic Training Center the year before. I met his brother, Rich Hincapi, who back then... At the Olympic Training Center, there was 110 juniors invited to the Olympic Training Center for the famous December camp, which was at that time run by Eddie Borschwitz, uh, RIP. We love you, Eddie. Um, and I was one of two 15-year-olds in a 16, 17-year-old camp, and I felt like a freshman walking into the cafeteria for the first time in high school. Like, I didn't know where to sit. You know, I was totally intimidated, didn't know anyone, didn't even know why I was invited to that camp. And Rich and his New York crew kind of took me under their wing. You know, hey, where are you sitting? Come over with us. And had a great two weeks with them. And your name, they kept talking about Rich's brother, George. George, George is so good. He wins this, he wins that. And I'm like, finally, after like 10 days of the, the two weeks that we were there, I said, hey, you guys talk so much about George, but if he's so good, why is he not here? And they said, he's only 13 years old. And I was like, oh, okay, that's a good reason. So fast forward to that cross-country trip that I took in 1987 with my dad. Dirk Friel came with us, who the, is the co-founder and chief evangelist for Training Peaks. We drove from... Glenwood Springs to Boulder to pick up Dirk and another guy, I forget what his name was. And we drove to Ohio, did the National Criterium Championships there. And then as soon as that was over, we hightailed it all the way to New Jersey. And we were like in my dad's camping car, switching off drivers as you're continually going down the road. The only time that we'd stop is to get gas. And we pull up to the start of... Somerville, which was a feat all in its own to get from Ohio to Somerville, like basically overnight. And um, I opened the door and I'm thinking to myself, the only person that I know here is Rich Hincapie. How the heck am I going to find Rich Hincapie in this sea of people? It was the first time I'd ever been to a criterium on the East Coast. And it was amazing how many people were there. This was before cell phones. This was before internet. This was before texting. And I open up the door to the the camping car. And lo and behold, I see George and Charlie Eisendorf, who's now working with Zwift, and, um, and Rich. I, I'm sorry. I didn't know George at the time, so I didn't know who this kid was. And I ran up to him, and I'm like, Rich, man, great to see you. 
And uh, he's like, yeah, this is my brother, George. And I was probably five foot eight at that time, maybe five foot six. And I looked up at this guy that had like a, you know, sleeveless T-shirt on, pair of like sunglasses and like a headband. And I looked up at him and the kid had a mustache at age 13. So that was my first introduction to to George Hincapie. And um, I, I think I've talked about it on this podcast before, what happened to me in that race. But um, after that, you know, we just kind of knew each other through Rich. And George started coming to the Olympic Training Center a lot. We were really good friends. Started, you know, we we lived in Lake Como, Italy when we turned pro or when I turned pro in 1995 and 1996. And obviously after Motorola stopped, you know, he went over to uh, to U.S. Postal and, and the rest was kind of history. But it, it's funny, that was... Um, 34 some odd years ago. And uh, now we're neighbors. Now we both have podcasts. And thank you very much for for coming on this one. <laughs> well, like I said earlier, thank you for having me on. And uh, yeah, those bring back some great memories. Um, like you mentioned, Tour Somerville was an iconic race for us young kids growing up. We'd show up at the start line back then. In the junior races, there'd be over 100 kids. Um, so I know both you and I have discussed this a lot recently where we'd love to see those days again. Uh, back here in the U.S. where we show up to races and see all these junior kids lining up. So, George, talking about um, meeting first time, I try to remember how and when we met the first time. I mean, I only joined the pros in 98. Um, and before I was locked uh, behind the Iron Curtain, or like they used to tell us, we were in front of the Iron Curtain. <laughs> you guys were locked out on the dark side of the world. When did we meet? Did you race 98, um, maybe the Dauphine Libre, or did we meet in the Tour de France the first time? That's actually a great a great question, because I'm wondering, did we ever race uh, Niedersachsen Runefart together? Um, back in the national team days. Wow. Yeah, I did that. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like I, rem I feel like I met you there and you probably just didn't uh, acknowledge my existence, <laughs> but the more formal time would be definitely either, um, the Dauphiné or the tour, uh, I would say. Ah, so we, we already know a long time without really knowing yes. each other. Correct. <laughs> and then, yeah, I mean, I, I feel, um, honored and a little little bit embarrassed here because I believe both of you have 17 Tour de France starts to your name. Is that correct? That is correct. Yenzi? Yes, it is correct. Yes. Okay. So 34 Tour de France's and then I add my little measly nine on there. So 43 Tour de France's between all of us. And um, you guys are talking about junior racing, Niedersachsen, Runefart and things like that. That's That's... That's amazing. That's that's the sport for you, no doubt. But um, who has that record now? Uh, was, wasn't Stuart O'Grady also had 17 and then somebody recently broke Sil it? Sylvian Chavanel has got 18 starts now. Do you guys think that we'll ever see anybody even come close to 17, 18 starts well, in the Tour de France? Since you decided to get so fit recently, I feel like I can come back. Like I'm just trying to hang on your wheel. I've been feeling really fit lately. And I think I, maybe I can at least do the start and maybe get through the prologue. And then I can say I started 18. If there's anybody out there. Well, <laughs> oh, honestly now, no kidding, boys. It just crossed my mind. Until two years ago, let's say within four years of retirement, I would have said, okay, if I start training, let's say 1st of December, I can survive the Tour de France. 
Now this year I go, no way in hell. I would at least need 18 months. No, no, I think it's it's over, Yenzi. It's over. Yeah. I, just to finish, just to finish, right? Not to win anything, just to be in the time limit. But I go, nah, not anymore. How, how do you guys feel? I, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, just... Uh, just watching it on TV and remembering all the risk we used to take and the danger and the suffering. I mean, just, I just, I still wake up in the middle of the night sometimes where I'm like, I'm, I'm in a race situation and I'm going around a corner and I'm sliding out <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, thank, thank God I'm not racing anymore because those things, as you remember, happen all the time. So, um, yeah, I don't think, uh, no, no matter how hard or how much I rode right now, I'd, I would be able to even take the start. <laughs> We are deep down into classic season. And if you're looking for some help getting back into shape, don't worry, Active Pass from outside has you covered. Bobby and myself are both members and get to enjoy training plans, exclusive gear discounts, entry to cycling events and more, including access to premium content from other outside publications like Velo News, Trail Runner, Yoga Journal, and Backpacker. And there's more coming soon, including Peloton Magazine. All in all, it's $350 worth of value for just $99. But if you enter our special coupon code BobbyJens25 at checkout, you will get another 25% off. Go to valuenews.com slash activepass and enter BobbyJens25. All one word, lowercase at checkout to receive our special 25% discount. Now, back to our chat with George. Well, we'll take it from me. Um, you guys bossed your um, post-retirement years pretty well, but I got into coaching and, you know, you don't really get fit sitting in a car or on the back of a motorcycle drinking little Cokes and those sandwiches that the Swan years prepare for you. So one of the last years I was racing, one of my buddies, when I was living out in Reno, Nevada, said, how hard is it to finish the Tour de France? And at that time, I said, man, it's not that hard to finish the Tour de France, to finish in the top 10 that's, you know, top 20 is hard. Top 10 is extremely difficult. Top five, come on. Top three, almost impossible. To win, you know, I'll never know. But fast forward a couple years after retirement, and I started, you know, riding with the riders on, you know, I lived on, in the, on the Cote d'Azur, and a lot of those guys lived in Monaco. And I swore to God that there was some sort of seismic activity that increased the gradient of the, all the roads in the entire region by about 5%. And I lost so much fitness so quickly that when I did move here to Greenville and started hanging out with Christian Vanneveld and George, and they were training for like the Cape Epic thing, I I was so just disheartened. I was like, this, this sport's terrible. Like it's the hardest thing ever. But- I call it the George Hincapie effect. You know, he he makes people around him motivated and and better. And in a way that is kind of like a little, you know, kind of nudge in the ribs, like, hey, you know, we're we're doing paceline this weekend. You better be ready for it. And at first you kind of turn it down, but then, you know, it's it's part of the activity that you do with your buddies again. And then it just kind of snowballs and 
you know, George, you're, you're, you're responsible for a lot of people's fitness here in Greenville, that's for sure. Well, let me go back to your first question there that, about your buddy asking you how hard it is to finish the Tour de France. I would task you to ask the Lantern Rouge of this coming Tour de France or last year's Tour de France how hard it was for him to finish the Tour de France. And I guarantee you his answer would be the hardest thing that's ever, I've ever done in my entire life. Because as we all know, you know, you're not only going there, there are some guys that are going just to survive or just to pull the first 100 kilometers of the race. And and yeah, they're finishing in the Gruppetto, but we've all been in that position where we're hanging on to dear life not to get dropped from the Gruppetto because if you know you get dropped from that Gruppetto, you're going home. So even though some of these guys are finished an hour or two hours behind the leader, I mean, they've suffered just as much as the guys that are winning, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. I mean, there, there's no doubt that you're you're talking about what now um, less than 200 when we were racing, there was probably 200 people. Now there, now there's what, 170, 180. They tried to cut down the, um, the number of participants by, uh, only having eight people teams instead of nine people teams. But yeah, in order to get to the tour de France in the first place, you have to be that top 1% of all cyclists in the world, or even that top 0.5% of those cyclists in the world. But, and, and, and everybody suffers. People have crashes, people break bones, people get sick. Um, people have bad days and actually I think it's a little bit more than that, George. If you look at the Lantern Rouge, uh, finish time, I bet you it's more like five to seven hours behind the winner. And you're absolutely right. Those guys suffer just as much. And that's why I love that award so much. My, my first tour, my first tour to France in 1996, I just remembered I, I was suffering so bad that I was almost hoping that I would crash because quitting the way we were brought up, quitting was not an option. Like you don't, you get to the finish line no matter what. If you go home, you should never have started the race in the first place. And I just remember going, if I crash, then at least I won't have to suffer this bad anymore. And uh, yeah, it was just great. It was that's how bad, that's how much pain uh, we would go through, and it's some of those things that yeah. You know. I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about because I had it a few moments, a few times. I went, man. A broken collarbone cannot hurt more <laughs> finish this day and go back on a bike tomorrow. Please just let me crash. That's a little broken collarbone, not too much. I know. That's how desperate yes. you are. That's how hard this sport yes, is. Yes, agreed. And I almost had forgotten about it, but now all the memories come crushing back at me. I go, oh my God, I'm so glad. Every time. Yes, but yes. Wh where do you think that mentality comes from? You know, you get you see a guy get hit, you know, kicked in the shin guards in football or soccer or whatever side of the of the globe that you're on and they roll around like their leg is broken in half. And I've seen broken bones on both of you guys and you've finished, finished the race. What, where do you think that mentality of I have to finish comes from? Because I think we're all guilty of it, but now in retirement, I'm like, man, it would have been so much better to tell that rider just to go home, you know, rest up, freshen up and then concentrate on the end of the season. But no one ever does that. What are we thinking? <laughs> I mean, I think I had my my early influences growing up as a junior. My national team coaches, you know, we had uh, Chris Carmichael, Renee Wenzel, guys that were like really tough. That just just never gave us an op like the option of not finishing or pulling out of a race because you weren't feeling good. It just it just instilled in our mind like that was not an option, and that kind of always stuck with me. Like if I was going to a race, if I made the effort or or had the you know the the teams relying on me to get to this race and do whatever the job that I need to do, then like quitting because I wasn't feeling good was just never, that wasn't an option. And of course, if you crash and you cannot continue, then you have to stop. But 
for any other reason, it was just instilled, I feel like, in all of our brains that we had to finish no matter what. Yeah, I, 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 I like the way that the guy who's talking about suffering so much was a part of nine yellow jersey um, winning years. <laughs> so I didn't ever win a yellow jersey, but George, you were on a team that won seven in a row. And then when when the uh, the boss of the Peloton retired, uh, you went to you stayed on the same team, and Alberto Contador came, and then you switched teams and helped Cadell Evans win. So Lance seven, Contador won, Cadell won. That's nine Tour de France winning teams that you were on. I think it was, I think it's a little bit of luck. I mean, I rode for, I just happened to be around guys that were freaks of an of athletes, not only of course, Lance and, and Contador, which I was only with Condor for one year and we won in 2007. Then Cadell. I mean, I always had different inspirations with, 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 um, with Lance it was about trying to break the records with Contador. It was like, can we continue winning on the same team without, without Lance with Cadell? We went with, uh, you know, I went with a, a small upstart team where everybody thought I was just kind of like phasing out of cycling. Um, so there was, it was always different inspirations. And of course I was with, I had the honor and pleasure with riding with Mark Cavendish, who was another one of those freak cyclists that come along, you know, once every hundred years that, you know, being around guys like that, they really just help keep you motivated and inspired. No matter how long I had been racing at that point, I always found different things that inspired me to, you know, continue doing my job as good as I could. You know, that's funny. Those three names and then Mark Cavendish. Um, I've spoken to all those guys and they say, that you were the reason why they won, why they were so good, why they were so inspired. So it's, you know, it's it's typical you to kind of pawn it off on them. But what do you think made you into the cyclist that you are, that you could be a, a you know a force to be reckoned with, winning classic races, and then totally change your training and then become the loyal lieutenant on the front. Um, there was not many people that that did that back when you were racing or even now. But what was it that just like you were like the Energizer Bunny, you would just reset the dials and start over again? I don't know many people that can do that. What what do you think was your real big biggest attribute to to ride an entire season classics and grand tours? Well, I mean, I feel strange, at, you know, answering that question with Two of you on the other line, which were, I mean, as as even more in, incredible of cyclists. I mean, you got the things you guys accomplished. Uh, but for me, it was personally about being. I never took my position for granted. When I was a kid, the only thing I dreamt about was being a professional cyclist. When I became a professional cyclist, like I knew how hard it was to get there, and I knew that at, at the moment that I decided, like, hey, you know, I'm here. Let's just ride the coattails, uh, make that paper, as we say. Although in cycling, we all know it's not that much paper, but it was better than being in a normal job. But I just never took my position for granted. And uh, I, I just got a lot of gratification from uh, the respect I got from my teammates, the respect I got from my competitors in the Peloton. And, you know, for, it was just always really important to, to have relationships within the bunch, whether it was in my team or outside of the team. I always remember fondly having conversations with you, with Jens and, you know, even though we were fierce competitors, we were always on teams that 
pretty much hated each other, but we always had fun times talking amongst each other in the Peloton. And, you know, those moments, it just seems like pretty simple, but that's what kids dream about. And I never forgot about that dream. And I just always um, wanted to do it for as long as I could. An ambitious undertaking to make the best race shoe even better. Shimano engineers studied pedaling dynamics while examining different rider types and pedaling styles to create its most technologically advanced cycling shoe. The pinnacle of road race performance. Every aspect of the S-Fire RC902 shoe is designed to maximize power transmission, comfort, and performance. Now back to our chat with George. I believe you also trained a lot, right? I mean, to keep your shape all year long, season after season, just out of pure interest. Do you remember like a standard, like a normal year for you? How much kilometers did you race and train? Oh, that's a good, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> I'm not like Bobby where I have everything. Oh, here we down. go. Here no we go. Guides. Here we go. <laughs> Bobby can tell us exactly the amount of kilometers he did in, in 1998, 97. I'm not, but it's a good question. And Jens, I feel like I did get a lot of freedom from my teams because they knew like I, I didn't race that much. I would race 60 races a year where a lot of the guys do 90 to 100 races a year. So I got a lot more time at home than most, most of uh, the normal uh, professionals in the Peloton, but they knew My team knew that when I was at home, I would live like a training camp lifestyle. Like I'd have somebody motor pacing me. I'd have people giving me massages. Everything was invested towards making me stronger on the bike. Uh, so it's not like I was going home and hanging out with my buddies and partying. Like the teams that I was on, they knew when I went home that, you know, I was living the really uh, professional lifestyle and I would come back ready to race. Yeah, professional. I mean, to this day, you go into George's house, he's got every single recovery thing in there he's got the the normatech boots the the little um hammer drill what the drills what is that drill <laughs> that, that awesome thing i got that I, I got the drill i got the juve light i got everything every, every it, instrument you can think of for recovery even now even though it doesn't matter how much i recover but i still like to live a healthy lifestyle jens you would walk into that house and just throw it all out the window like you don't need this you don't need this but you know george you said something about you know finishing you know 17 Tour de France starts, you know, five Olympics, nine Tour de France jerseys on the wall. You said that you had some luck. We, you know, okay, we had luck. I'm curious about, did you have any superstitions on the bike? Was there anything that, you know, from year to year that you wouldn't do? I know that I had a couple ticks, but I was curious if a guy, you know, rock solid like yourself has, has any little superstition that, that you could share with us. I would never like to shave the day before a really big uh, one-day race. Obviously, in the Tour de France, like you're there, so you're there for a month. You have to shave at some point. But uh, the day before World Cups, I would never like to shave. I felt like that would be bad luck if I shaved. Where I don't have no idea why, where, or how that came, but that was my only one weird superstition. I I, I had the same superstition, and I know where it came from. I read it. Okay. That Vyacheslav Ekimov said that um, somewhere. And that I, I had the same thing. So in the Tour de France, I never shaved my legs with a razor. I, <laughs> I only had the little, um, you know, portable, you know, what is that? The, I don't even know if they have them anymore. It's not like the razor, but it's like an electrical razor. 
And yeah, they still have them. But what are they called? I, I mean, make me <laughs> like a like a, like a Remington or yeah, something like that. Yeah, or, exactly. Yeah. And you know, you'd have to like go outside on the porch because like the little stubble hairs would go everywhere and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I I think I got that from Vyacheslav Ekimov a uh, long time ago. Jens, what about you? Did you have any uh, superstitions? I mean, you were the Sherman tank, but uh, you had to have something. I don't believe in superstitions, superstition, but. I still always put the right sock on first. I, and I, also, I don't know where that came from and what it meant to me. Always the right sock and always the right number first. Never the left. I don't know. It never changed anything. But for some reason, it got stuck in my mind. And uh, it's always the right sock and the right number on your jersey first. So if you ever had the number 13, would that phase you? Would you put it upside down? I actually, I believe I would try to fight it. I go, nah, it's just a number and just put it on the way it is. Until I probably crash in it the first time. Then I go, ouch, I learned my lesson. <laughs> but no, I would probably go, nah, forget about it. Um, I would just put it on. Yeah, I don't remember actually ever having a number 13, oddly enough. So I don't know what I would do. Yeah, I, I would have a hard time with that. I wasn't really good with 13s. To this day, if I look down at my watch um, and it says 1111, I'm like, okay. If it says 11:13, I'm like, uh-oh, look out. Something uh something's always up with me with those little superstitions, but you know, George, you mentioned junior racing and how much fun it was, how excited it was that we had posters of the men and the women that were in the pro peloton up on our walls. But but now you have a son that's racing. What what are some of the differences you see that things that we had to deal with that now your son is encountering? Because, I mean, he's 12, almost 13 years old. Uh, he definitely has the the Hincapi last name, and he loves cycling. So tell us a little bit, A, about being a cycling dad, and and B, like, what are the things, the challenges that that young Enzo is dealing with that uh, that maybe we didn't have to deal with? So it's, 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 it's fun. I mean... Selfishly speaking, I, I wanted my kids to be either into biking or tennis because I want to do sports with them. Um, so it's, it's my two sons or my, my little son, Lucas, is getting slowly into biking. And now my 12 year old Enzo, as you know, he's getting really into it and uh, he's, he's biking a ton. Um, the differences are, I mean, these kids know all about like watts and, and kilo and, you know, watts per kilos. And this morning he asked me, dad, how come I don't have a heart rate monitor? I'm like, you're 12 years old. Like, why do you need a heart rate monitor? Like you don't need all this stuff. You just need to learn how to ride a bike and, you know, have fun while riding. And if you want to do intervals and all this stuff, you have plenty of time to do that. I'm not a big believer in like pushing intervals and all this stuff on, on kids that age. Cause I feel like first they need to learn how to ride a bike. The most important skill is handling your bike, you know, how, how good you can navigate yourself through tight circumstances. And, um, those are much more important to me right now than any sort of, and I, I know Bobby hates hearing this because he's Mr. Watts for kilo coach, but I think you agree with me on this one that at certain, at this age, it's more about learning how to ride a bicycle, have fun and continue to challenge yourself. Yeah. You're painting a dark picture of me, uh, George, which I'm not totally, um, <laughs> uh, supportive of, but, uh, definitely for, for young kids starting out and uh, before his race this last weekend, I, I asked him, I said, what's the objective today? And he said, to win. And I said, nope. Then he said something else like, um, 
to not get dropped. And I'm like, okay, no, you're on the right path. And on the third time, he said, to have fun. And I said, that's the answer I was looking for. I mean, just going there and having fun, you know, you're not making any money as a junior, you're just learning. And and that's that's the thing is, you know, I have two daughters that were never excited about cycling. It must be an amazing feeling being a coach. I mean, you're Coach G to to Enzo. And and I see the way that you, you know, talk to him and it's it, it's it's fantastic. And, you know, he he's obviously is 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 making some strides moving forward and it's just so exciting to see that smile on your face when he does something good but i did see you pucker a little bit when um they were coming to the final sprint over the weekend and there was a big crash and luckily he avoided that crash because he must have that that hinkapi mosca um the mosca avoided the the crash like like a pro but so you, as you know, Bobby, I have a big, mo- I, have, I put a big Mosca sticker on his, the front of his top tube, so he always knows to be Mosca. But for me, it's just super fun. And, and Bobby and I did it this weekend. We're able to actually ride behind the peloton. He's racing the Cat Four or Fives, and uh, it's just really fun as a parent and you know as as his coach to be able to see him ride through these little gaps. And the first day, we we're kind of telling him like, hey. You're, t- you're too far back. You, you know, position yourself a little bit further up. Second day, you can see him being a little bit more aggressive. But then it's, it's funny when you tell him about the next level. Like when you get really good, you can hang at the back for as long as you want. But when you're good, you know that you can get to the front whenever you need to. So there's a big difference there. But it's, it's fun to be able to, to explain to him the, the differences and, and how, and how important positioning is, even though this is, you know, small time racing, but, those holes in the, in the in the little gaps in the peloton, we all know as a pro, you see them and and they're they're huge. You know if you can get your handlebars in, you can go. But as a you know a, a beginner cyclist, I mean they're the scariest thing ever. Like you don't want to go anywhere near those holes. But it's it's fun to watch a, a young kid being able to you know get more aggressive and be able to learn how to move his way around the peloton. George, um, you were born in Queens in New York, right? Yes. And me from being Germany and a tourist, isn't Queens like, or was it back then like the... the, the it was a city neighborhood right outside of New York City and, you know, about the least ideal place to, to learn how to ride a bike <laughs> uh, for that matter. But at the same time, we were able to race every weekend in Central Park and in Prostate Park. And um, I always say that was a, a very big influence on my career because as a young kid, I was a racing against all these Europeans, these South Americans. I mean, we all know New York City has got this you know, this huge mix of cultures and all of these people immigrated to New York to find jobs, but they were, they had cycling in their blood and their, these weekend races was their outlet and they wanted to win no matter what. It didn't matter if a 12 year old kid was getting in their way, they would push them out of the way to win. And, you know, that's, that was the way, that was my experience growing up as a cyclist. And, you know, at the time as a kid, yes, it's tough, but it's just, it's, it was the best way to learn, learn trial by fire, so to speak. And, you know, I, I, uh, attribute a lot of my uh, cycling style to the way I grew up racing a bicycle in New York City. And would you agree that Central Park is actually a lot harder and hillier than most people would think, right? Yeah, I mean, it's got a good little hill in there. I mean, if you could, we've all ridden Zwift as well with the, the Central Park loop that has a much bigger hill than actually is in Central Park. But uh, yeah, no, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough, you know, technical loop with a couple of rollers, um, um, and it's just, it really challenges everything sort of, uh, attribute that you need to be, 
that you need to have as a cyclist. And like I said, racing against adults that had cycling in their, in their blood that, you know, grew up racing was a, a huge, uh, you know, uh, advantage for me to be able to learn from them. And then like down your, uh, like many more years late in your career, you moved to Greenville, South Carolina. Now yeah. you're neighboring with uh, Bobby Jay and Christian van der Felder. What's the magic about that environment there? Can you tell our followers why you well, guys all ending up there? Well, we had the honor to show you around Jens a couple of years ago. I don't know if you remember, but uh, Jens came out and, uh, you know, it's, I think people are, are, are quite uh, impressed when they first come here. We, you know, there's the amount of traffic, the amount of roads, the climbing, uh, just, just have so many different options that I could have lived anywhere I wanted when I, especially as a young pro without a family. And uh, I, I had a hard time finding a better place in Greenville. So initially I only came here just because A, it was on the East Coast, so I can get to Europe relatively easier. But the cycling was so good. It had everything you absolutely needed. And since then it's evolved into much more. It's a great place to live now. It's a great place to raise a family. There's, the downtown has uh, really evolved as well. And, um, you know, we need to get you back here, Jens. We missed you. We had fun. We didn't get to get to spend enough time with you as we wanted to, but hopefully you'll be able to come back and visit us soon. I remember that. The state in your hotel, what a fantastic place. And, and talking about your hotel and it kind of moves to what I wanted to talk about was your Grand Fondos. So 10 years ago, when you retired, your brother wanted to do a go away race. So they create, you guys created a course and invited a bunch of people and it wound up being the inaugural uh, Grand uh, Greenville Hincapie Grand Fondo. Tell us a little bit about how that started. I know it was your retirement party and uh, I was over in Europe, so I didn't, uh, wasn't able to come back for it. But did you think at that time that retirement ride would turn into, which is now uh, a 10 year event, right? You were celebrating your 10 year uh, anniversary this year. Yeah, no, I, I had, I would never have envisioned uh, us doing it. 10 times. Uh, initially, like you said, it was just kind of sort of a retirement party. Uh, we invited some, uh, some of my ex teammates and a, a thousand people showed up. And since then the, the event has grown every year and, uh, we, we, I, I can't believe it, but we've hit year 10 coming up this year. And, you know, this year we want to be able to celebrate it, um, bring, bring more of our, you know, ex, ex teammates and, uh, hopefully we can get Jens to come. It's in October, Jens. That would be super fun. But also this year we're going to add on a, a whole new, a whole nother, uh, portion of the event, which is we're going to do a junior race and we're going to add several thousand dollars to the prize list. And it's going to be, uh, men and women. They're going to start right behind, uh, the, the first row of, of, uh, where, where we're starting and they're going to race the 50 mile version of the fundo and they're going to, uh, have prize money on the line, probably with some of, probably the largest, one of the largest uh, purses in the country. And we really just want to celebrate the juniors. We hope that a bunch of people will come out and race it. It's an amazing course. It's a world-class course for juniors. We're going to have KOM prizes. Um, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to just feel like I, st I, I still know Bobby J still talks about the Tour of Libidibi, like as, as highly as he does about his Tour de France days. So I, I want to be able to give that. We want to be able to give that experience to these up-and-coming juniors where they feel like they're doing their own mini Tour de France. And hopefully, you know, this really kind of helps catapult them to the next level of the sport. I mean, there is really 
hardly any junior races out there these days. And, you know, we want to be able to give back to, to the to younger riders and we hope they show up and we hope they have a great time and make a little money at the same time. And what's, what's the date of that one just for our listeners to, to put that on their calendar? It's October 23rd. That's, that'll be another thing. You'll be able to watch it live on our, you know, our streaming service. Um, so they're, they're going to have the full, the full experience feeling like they're racing a, you know, a, a pro tour event. Yeah, I have to admit, it was the the event that got me back into cycling. When I moved here, it was, hey, Bobby, you got to get fit for the Fondo. And I thought you guys were crazy. And then, you know, peer pressure, started riding a little bit, made it through the Fondo. And I remember it was just just a beautiful day. You guys obviously waited at every um, rest stop for me, so I was able to finish with you guys. But when I crossed the finish line, I saw your brother who, you know, obviously does a lot of the work. He's majorly stressed and he's sitting there with his arms folded. And I crossed the finish line and I just gave him the biggest hug. And, and I said, you know, you were one of my, you were my oldest friend in cycling. And thank you so much for putting on this event because I want to ride my bike more. And ever since that day, I've ridden my bike more. And it's it's and ever since that day, I'm getting half wheeled by Bobby Julek every time we go out, and I'm barely hanging on. So I love this story. I'm honored that we had a little bit to do with your comeback, but you've gotten way too strong lately now. So our fun rides are now a bit more of a, a suffer fest. That's 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 what they call fake news over here in the states, Jens. Once we back, <laughs> once we back, um, talking about uh, cycling, George, just um, out of interest. What was the longest time you were off your bike in retirement? That's a great question. So during my cycling career, I would take a month off uh, every year at the end of the season, one month, not, not touch the bike. The longest time I've taken off my bike since I've retired is maybe uh, four days. <laughs> like if I've gone to... <laughs> <laughs> You're like, ready for a comeback, my friend. <laughs> if I've gone to vacation somewhere... But now it's funny, like if I go to vacation, I tell my wife, it's got to be somewhere where I can ride my bike because otherwise I go crazy. So, yeah, that's a great question. But it's probably four days in the last eight years or nine years that I've been retired. It's the longest period with, I've gone without the bike. Yeah. And then uh, Bobby, uh, Bobby and uh, George, question for all three of us. Do you also have sometimes your wife going, hey, honey, listen, you're like, you, you're a little like, I, I think you need to go out again. <laughs> like you're a little restless or like why don't you oh especially during covid yes they're like well, don't you have any events coming up <laughs> yeah mine uh mine was tough there for a while she's like um why why do you, why do you ride your bike every day you know you're are, are you thinking of coming you know doing a comeback and i'm like no it's just i like it it makes me feel better i'm more productive in work when i come back i'm healthier um she gets it now i mean she's been around for 20 six years. So I think she gets it. But uh, one last thing, George, because now I'm so excited about that Greenville Grand Fondo, but you have another Grand Fondo in Chattanooga coming up on May 1st. Um, tell us a little bit about that course, because the people that are interested in coming to Greenville should definitely hit up the uh, the Chattanooga Grand Fondo, right? Yeah, that's coming up, like you said, May 1st, so right around the corner. It's a great course. We have an 80, 50 mile, an 80 mile and a 50 mile and a, and a, a 12 mile version. Uh, the 80 mile has got about 6,000 feet of climbing. Uh, and it's, it's super great, uh, roads there, very fast, very flowy. And the difference between there and here is that there's a lot more flatter sections in between the climbs. So you can roll, if you find a good group, you can roll real fast and, 
Um, it's a great town. Uh, highly, if you haven't been to Chattanooga, I highly recommend going, even if you can't make our events. And uh, we're just happy that, uh, you know, we're getting some sense of normalcy back and uh, hoping that uh, the rest of the world can, can uh, follow suit here soon. Hey, I'm George. Um, sorry for always going back uh, to your cycling days. Um, I'm just curious if you would be, let's say, in Paris-Roubaix or in the Tour de France, in the breakaway, and you were in the break and you could pick five riders, let's say, of all times, who would be with you in your perfect breakaway? Five extra guys for you. Definitely Jens, because Jens, and, not, and uh, you know, Jens was a hammer. Not, he, wouldn't, he would never hide how good he was because he just wanted to rip people's legs off. Like me, if I was good, I would kind of pretend like I wasn't good because I thought, oh, I need to save a little bit for the sprint. But anytime I was in a breakaway with Jens, it was like, oh, my God, hang on, fasten your seatbelts. Jens is going to pull like, and, just, and just kill everybody. So Jens would be one. Um, I would say uh, Pavel Padrinos. You guys remember him? Oh, yeah. Just a big, real big guy, super strong. And if you got on his wheel, you're basically doing, you know, 40% less work than, than him. Another German, another hammerhead, the Panzer Wagon, Tony Martin. I mean, that guy can pull forever. And, uh, you know, he's a really good guy. I was, I was able to be, I was teammates with him for, for two years. So I got to have some, some good times with him. Uh, then I would have to throw in, uh, obviously I was a classics rider. So I would want like a, somebody like an Andreas Clear who you knew, you knew you had to follow his line no matter what, because he knew every inch of the road in Belgium. Um, and he knew if there was, he, he was so precise with positioning on the roads. He would know uh, weeks beforehand if there was, if there had been construction on a road, like a kilometer before the Quermont, he would say, guys, on the left side of the road, there would be some, some rocks left over from this construction. So on this moment, one kilometer before the left turn of the Quermont, you need to be on the right no matter what. Like that's how detailed he was. So I would want to have him in, in, in there as well. I'd follow him around. And then lastly, um, I would hate to say it because he always beat me when I was in a breakaway with him would be Tom Bonin. Because if you were in a breakaway with Tom Bonin, that means you made the selection, the final selection. Because he was never in a what we call a panic cooking breakaway. It was always when the shit hit the fan, you had just gone over one of the hardest cobblestone sections or hardest cobble climbs, and you're in, you're in there with him, you're on a good day because you made the final selection. Damn. That's, that, that's, that's pretty good. I'm glad that you didn't feel obligated to put me in there because, you know, Mr. Mr. Crystal Cranker in that group would have been like in a ditch somewhere. <laughs> But George, honestly, yeah. it was so awesome having you on. I know we get to see each other every single day, um, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, we've been we've known each other a long time, and uh, we still share the the passion of the bicycle. And uh, once once we get Yenzi over here, and you know, we we got to celebrate your 10 year anniversary in style. So let's get get all your buddies that that love Gentleman George over here to Greenville uh, in October. That would be awesome. It's really great to catch up with you guys. And Jens, it's great to see you. And we'd love to have you back in Greenville. It's that time of the podcast again today for the hashtag Shut Up Legs Rider of the Week Award. Jensi, I got a good one. Who do you got this week? Well, first I thought, of course, it should be Mark Cavendish with that miracle comeback and four stage wins. But then I thought that's too obvious. So I went for Ida Andersen. You don't know him? No worries. I didn't know him before as well. 
21 years old from Norway, second place on the first stage of Tour de Alps. Young and smart, he was the only one who could follow the attack of Gianni Moscon. Got a little bit dropped from Moscon towards the final line. Still hanging on to second place from the um, smaller Norwegian team Uno X Pro Cycling Team. And as a nice bonus, it's our old teammate and friend Kurt Asler Arvesen running the team. So I had to send a quick message to Kurt. Hey Kurt, well done. You guys doing well. Totally unknown rider, small team, kicking it there with the big boys. Fantastic to see. Yeah, it, it was definitely hard to to pick this week. There was so many. I mean, you know, we wanted Tommy P to not only win Robin Sapel, but, uh, you know, he came within, I don't know, I think he won um, Amstel Gold, but uh, that's that's to be determined. But I'm going to go for Wout Van Aert. And the reason why I'm doing that is because this guy's been going full gas since cyclocross season, but then again, so is, has Tommy P, so has Matteo van der Poel. But I just got to respect this guy's resilience. You know, he, he comes out, he doesn't win the world championship uh, cycle cross. He goes straight into Strada Bianchi. He, he gets dropped a little bit, you know, gets fourth. You know, he wins the stage uh, of Torino, you know, I think the first stage and the last stage. Big favorite going into Milan San Remo. He doesn't win Milan San, San Remo. He gets third. But he wins Ghent Webblegem. Then, you know, suffers a little bit in, in some of the other races, gets beat by Tommy P. They're coming to the same scenario in the final sprint. Those two guys head to head, and he does just enough to win. So for me, this week, I have to go with Wout Van Aert. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Huge thanks to Big G for being our guest. Thanks for listening. Please. Give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Bella News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne, and this episode was edited by Kirk Warner. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us. <laughs>